Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning. So glad that we get to gather around God's Word after we've been worshiping Him, praying Him, and uh, looking forward so much for this particular uh, sermon here today as, and an opportunity for you to begin to practice expositional listening. We've been doing uh, that study in our small groups this past week, and we're looking for the meaning of, of the text, the meaning of this paragraph of God's Word together here this morning. I'm going to try to deliver and preach that to you, and you can be listening for that as we try that today. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 today. Uh, we're going to be starting there. As you know, this series is called Abide Together, and we're trying to pursue the things that Jesus loves together, all of us. We're trying to be the, uh, a church that abides in the vine of Jesus Christ, as John 15 talks about, and that we aren't just individuals doing that, but that we are corporately, as a church community, as a church family, all doing this together. And so we have six things that we are pursuing as a church that we believe help us to abide in Christ. And we've looked at three of them so far. You can see on the screen, we've, we've looked at fervent prayer, passionate worship and biblical preaching is what we looked at last week. And those are all really things that tell us that uh, God loves us. And as loved people, uh, we then have some things that we should be about. Uh, we were sent to some things, including purposeful discipleship. And then the next two weeks, we'll look at courageous evangelism and uh, strategic church planting. In all of this, we are these things describe what kind of church we are trying to be. And, and in preaching this series, I'm calling us together. I'm calling each individual that's a part of Harvest KL, whether you're new or you've been coming for many years, we want to gather around these things and abide in Christ Jesus. And so today, we're going to talk about uh, how to abide through purposeful discipleship. So why does Harvest KL exist? Why, why, why do we even gather together as a church? Uh, maybe I can ask you, why do you think we should be together as a church? Well, as you think about that, we've defined that through our mission statement. And in our mission statement, we say that we want to glorify God by making disciples who know that they are loved and sent. You see, what we're saying here is loved people, uh, people who live loved, live in the reality of God's love to them, they love others and they serve others. Uh, put this way, love people are always sent. And this is a good thing. This is an amazing thing. Sometimes we hear, I'm sent, and it's like, oh, I have all this responsibility. I'm not sure I want that. But you got to realize how awesome this is. It means that you're loved and God's given you a purpose. And not, not only a purpose, he, he's given you a specific role to play in all of his workings here in this world. And that means you're significant. Those are powerful concepts as we realize how much God loves us and this purpose and roles and the significance that we have. And so that's why we talk about purposeful discipleship. You might be thinking, wait a second, me? I'm supposed to be purposefully making disciples of others? And the answer is yes. 
Actually, I want to gather us together here by, I know we're scattered throughout the city, gathering in our Harvest Kale at home locations. Maybe you're, you're on your own uh, somewhere as well, listening. Uh, that's okay. Let's gather around. Let's say a statement, a phrase together, just to kind of bring unity to what we're doing. So l- let's say the phrase, it's my job to make disciples. All right? Let's say that now. It's my job to make disciples. When we think about that, making disciples, what, what is discipleship? And so glad that God's word doesn't leave us hanging on this. He, he actually defines and helps us understand that. And a very important text of scripture that tells us that is Matthew chapter 28. And we call this the Great Commission statement because it's the kind of the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. And he gave instructions to his followers. He said this, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." You see, that, that's really where our mission, statements, mission statement comes from here at Harvest KL. And we understand we are supposed to make disciples. We're supposed to make followers of Jesus Christ. And something I just think is important to point out in this, notice that this is a command of Jesus. This isn't an optional thing. This isn't a, like some people are told to do this, but I'm kind of excused from, from class here. No. Every single person who is a believer, a follower of Jesus, has been given this particular command to make disciples of all nations. Now, now in that, you have to realize that because it's a command, if we're not doing this, we're being disobedient. We're outside of the bounds of what God has called us to do and instructed us to do and and being disobedient to the one that we call our master and our king um, is really out of order. And so we have to realize that purposeful discipleship is something that every single one of us is responsible for. That's why we can say, it's my job to make disciples. We're supposed to go and baptize them into the church and those who, who, follow, who believe in Jesus, who convert to Jesus. And then we're supposed to teach them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. And in that, we're told, we, we put the adjective purposeful in front of the instruction to be disciple makers. So purpose is a reason for which something is done. If you put the purpose full, if you put the F-U-L on the end of the, the word, it actually changes the definition a little bit. And purposeful means to, fi- to have fixed intention on doing something. It's the idea of intentionality. I'm going to intentionally do this. And so uh, just uh, put it in a sentence here. Uh, the purposeful reconstruction of historical sites was part of the city plan. You see, the idea of intentional, they're, they're planning to do something. And, and really, as we describe it here, I want to rally us around one thought that is really at the center, center and core of what, uh, what this text is teaching us today in Ephesians 4, and it's this. We are called to make disciples of Jesus in his church. Every single one of us. That's why we start with the word we. It's, Every single believer of Jesus, everybody who's listening now, who's put their faith and trust in Jesus, you are called to make disciples of Jesus Christ in his church. So I'm going to show you this from Ephesians, and Ephesians 4, uh, uh, 1 to 16 is our text here today. 
And I want to start first with actually the verse right before it, at the end of chapter 3, verse 21. It says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church and, and he breaks out into an outburst of praise. This is a doxology where he just, he, he just can't help but overflow with praise. And in the midst of this, he says, uh, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Uh, the idea of glory is, this, is the idea of weightiness, that God's character, the wholeness of who he is, is being reflected by the church back to him. That's what God desires. Really, this is a pinnacle statement in the book of Ephesians. Paul started writing in chapter 1, and he's building all up until this statement, and then he explains the statement through the rest of the book. And what we see here is that in chapter 1, our salvation is through the gospel of Jesus. And then in chapter 2, we see the story of how salvation unfolds for all of us, and then how the Jews and Gentiles break down a dividing wall uh, that they're now united together under Christ. And that means that they're in, they're in the church. That's what chapter 3 describes. The church is revealed as God's plan for how he's going to showcase who he is, how he's going to demonstrate who he is. And so for glory to be reflected back to him from the church, how do we do that? How does that happen? How is Christ glorified in his church? Well, let me read for you our verses here this morning. Let's look at Ephesians 4. 1 to 16 together, it says this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when, it is, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Purposeful discipleship. Say it together with me. It's my job to make disciples. How do we obey Christ's command to make disciples? Well, number one here this morning, I want you to see this. 
we purposely live out our call to unity in the body. What we're saying here is actually that God is glorified in the church when we fight for unity, when we, when we pursue the things for unity is really what it says. And so I want you to notice all the way back in verse 1, Paul is writing, he's a prisoner in Rome, but he, he's never a prisoner by the government. He knows that God is sovereignly in control. So a prisoner for the Lord, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do you see that in verse 1? What he's saying here, what he means here is really that the gospel calls me into the body of Christ. He's actually referring to what he wrote in chapter 1. If you just turn your page over for a moment, let me just read for you a section here that talks about the gospel and how it impacts us. It says in verse, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in, his, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul here is describing in, in this chapter, in these verses right here, he's describing the gospel that calls us into the body of Christ. I think we, should, we could think of it this way. We could just imagine for a moment that there was a, a miserable man living a, a pitiful life. He would come home from his, from his work to a house that he owned, that, but he lived in all by himself. He lived in alone. Occasionally he would have people come over, uh, but it, he really was having a miserable existence. This is seen by the fact that each night he, he would just grab himself a cup of noodles, a cup of ramen. That's all he could, could have for dinner. And he would sit on his couch and he would, he would eat chippies and twisties and, 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 and that was all he had for, for his dinner. Really, it was, it was really kind of a pity, pitiful existence. He, he, he would drip his noodles on his chest as he watched, but he was living alone and he was just having, having this miserable, miserable life. In the midst of one rainy night, sitting in front of the TV, having nothing to do, uh, eating his, his, his chippies, he gets a call. It's a call from a house down the street where the mayor lives in, and he has this massive mansion in this incredible compound that he lives on. And the call is, come, we want you to come to banquet tonight. Come right away. Don't even worry about anything. We have a, a room in the house prepared. We have clothes for you. you. You can come and dine with us. We are inviting all the neighbors. And he decides to come. 
He gets to the house and sure enough, he's escorted up to a room where there's fine clothes laid out for him. He, he is able to put them on and, and he, as he's walking down the stairs, he kept, keeps reminding himself of what his mother said if an opportunity like this ever came. He says, mind your manners, mind your manners, mind your manners. You see, being at a banquet with all the guests that were invited there, the mayor of that town, he knew he had to, had to act differently. He couldn't act the way he did on his couch in his pitiful existence. He had to live up to the worthiness of being at this particular banquet. Paul here is begging the church to live a life worthy of the gospel call in that same manner. Which means, the manner in which I live out my calling matters. Listen, if you've been called to Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how you live your life matters immensely to God. So he says here in this verse, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do you walk worthy? What is worthy of this calling that, that has been described for us? Well, it says to us in verses 2 and 3, it tells us how. It says this, that we're supposed to walk with all humility, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, we have this high calling that we are supposed to walk in, and we're supposed to walk in it in a lowly way. It says right here that we are to walk with all humility. Humility, not considering others uh, be, uh, not considering ourselves better than others, not, not putting ourselves in front of others, but, but humility, them first. It says with patience, it says, uh, I'm sorry, it says with gentleness. Really, the idea of meekness is really what's at play here. And so it, it's not that everything is just treated really softly. There, there's still a, a meekness. There's a, there's, a, there's a way of delivering truth in a way that cares for the person that's involved. It says with, with patience meaning sometimes things don't go as quickly as one, we want them to. I, I want them to change. I want them to be different. And we make demands and we need patience and then bear with one another in love. Uh, this is the idea of dealing with problems well, dealing with each other well. It's, it's not saying that there's an absence of problems here. It's, it's just saying when there are, you deal with them in a way that is, is done well. And all of that is so that you maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Our first goal that we're going to see here tonight is that, the, that we are to maintain the melody of unity that results in the harmony of peace. You see, God has given us a tune to follow. It's the melody. It's the, it's the main part of the song. And, and as that tune plays, we're supposed to get in step with the unity of the Spirit. And when we do that, there's a harmony that happens. There's a peace that results uh, that causes the beauty of what's going on. Paul explains why he tells us to be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace, unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says in verse 4 to 6 that this is the nature of what he calls us to. There's one body, one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one God and Father of all. You see, the very nature of what we've been called to in, out, of the, out of death and into God's family as adopted sons and daughters is one where there is unity under Jesus Christ. 
And so unity is to be characteristic because it's the very nature of the church that's defined by the oneness. Seven times we're told of the oneness that we are that is expressed in the nature of the unity of the Spirit. The church we see in chapter 3 is the showpiece for what God is doing. And the thing that displays most clearly God in the church is when the church is not divided, but when it's unified. The mystery of God's will is that we will unite under one headship of Jesus Christ. And so the goal that we're told here is to purposely pursue the maintaining of the unity given to us at salvation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would have you know, it's not telling us to create unity. We don't have to go up and make something up and figure something out. We're, We're told to maintain the unity that we already have by being united with Jesus Christ. We're given the spirit and the nature of that is that there is a oneness that happens in the midst of that. And so we don't have to create unity among each other. We are to maintain the unity that's been given. And so that's why, uh, as a practical application to what we're learning here, surprise, I want you to fight for something. Now, Usually when we talk about unity, we're saying we don't want to fight. We want to stop fighting. We don't want that kind of fighting anymore. But we need to fight for unity. This is the nature of our calling. Not that we fight one another, but that we fight for unity. And I would contend to you that if we're going to fight for unity, that means there is a battle that has to happen. There is a fight that I must be engaged in, and it is the fight in myself for unity. I have to fight myself. I have to fight my, fight my rights. Oftentimes I think, this is my right. I should get it my way. We have to fight our preferences. This is the way I like it, and I think everybody else should too. We have to fight our desire to be served. We, and all of that, all of these things have to be sacrificed so that we can be united with other followers of Jesus Christ. That means that as we fight ourselves, we have to sacrifice convenience. And you know what? My schedule would work so much better if we did small group on Monday night. But I'm fighting the inconvenience of the fact that it's that my small group meets at a different night of the week. And so I'm going to give up my convenience. I'm going to sacrifice that to be there. I'm going to have to sacrifice my own comfort sometimes. Sometimes it's an issue of personality. I, I'm an introvert. I, I, don't, I don't want to greet one another the way the Bible tells us to. And listen, there's ways for internet introverts to actually follow that command to greet one another, right? Not the way everybody, all the extroverts do. But, but in that, we have to recognize, sometimes I have to give up some of my comfort for that. Sometimes giving up my comfort means uh, giving up uh, the idea that that's not how I do it in my culture. And so the comfort level that comes with the assumption of the culture that I come from has to be given up. We have to sacrifice control. How many times has it happened where somebody has said, I'm not going to participate unless it's done my way? I mean, I I don't know that that's always voiced, but many times isn't that what is actually happening when there's disunity that is going on? 
And verse 2 is the thing that helps us understand. Listen, we have to give up these things. What do we replace them with? What do we, what do we pursue? Look again at verse 2. It says that if we're going to live worthy of the calling to which we've been called, if we're going to live worthy to have the unity of the Spirit among us, it's going to require me to have humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love. Listen, it's, it's going to be the motivation of love that causes me to be able to actually fight myself. To, to put Love is putting you before me that I would fight in that way. So let's say it together, this phrase that we've been rallying around, that it's my job to make disciples. Let's say it again. It's my job to make disciples. And we're learning how to do that. How do we do that? And Paul is telling us how that happens. He told us, first of all, that that we have to purposefully pursue this unity of the Spirit. But there's a second thing that he tells us in these next verses. We need to purposefully build up the body to maturity. Paul is saying that God is glorified in the church when we grow up in maturity. And so he tells us some things here uh, to talk about how that's supposed to happen. First of all, he says that you have a gift to be used to build up the church to maturity. Did you know that? that? That you've been given a spiritual gift for the purpose of building up the church? Look at verse 7. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, when it's talking about grace here, it's not talking about the grace of the salvation gift that we've been given. Uh, This is actually the word doria. It it means a free gift, and it's used to describe spiritual gifting that every believer at the point of salvation is given by Jesus to help build up the body of Christ. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? These things are actually described and listed in Romans chapter 12. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I encourage you, if you've, not, if you've never understood that you have a spiritual gift, go and look at these chapters and then let's talk about those things. We're, I'm not going to actually expound upon these too much tonight about what they are, but we are going to talk about how they're used. Everybody has a spiritual gift for the purpose of building up the church. Notice what verse 16 says. It, it says, Uh, that when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church builds itself up. Listen, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, you're in the family of God, you're in His church, you're part of the body of Christ, you're supposed to help build up the body of Christ in love. So it's interesting that we have this gift for the body. And the body has a lot of diverse parts. We're supposed to be unified, but we recognize unified doesn't mean we're all the same. Same. It means that there's a lot of differences, including different gifts that we're supposed to use together. And that when we begin to function as a unit, when all the parts are doing what they are supposed to do, that's when the body is properly working. So spiritual gifts are given for the sake of the body. The diverse gifts that you have, are, are the purpose of that is so that the body works and functions together in a way that causes a growing and maturity in that. So one of my favorite little uh, children's novels is C.S. Lewis' uh, series called Narnia. And in one of the first books, uh, of the story anyways, we see that three of the main characters, uh, three of the children, are given gifts. 
and they're given gifts at a, at a really important time when, when it begins to seem like the evil is thawing. And, and, and so one, the oldest boy is given a sword and a shield. And the oldest girl is given a, a bow and arrow and a horn. And the, the youngest, younger sister is given a dagger and a bottle of magic cordial, which can heal when a little drop is placed on somebody. And in this, they're told something really important. They're actually told that they are, these gifts that are being given are not toys, but tools. You see, our spiritual gifts are tools to be used to build up the body of Christ. They're not toys for our enjoyment and our pleasure. And, and, and so we're told here that you are given a gift in verse 7. You're given a gift and you receive that gift from Jesus Christ. Like we should feel the weight of the fact that Jesus, the, our Savior, the one who is king of the universe, has given a gift for a purpose. That's not a light thing. That, that, that's actually really significant. So he tells us that we're given gifts, and then we're going to talk about the motivation for that in a few moments. If you just look down at verse 11, he actually, God tells us how to use the gifts. He says in verse 11 and 12, And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When we minister gifts to one another, Christ is on display. The reason that God has given you this tool, this gift, is so that you display His splendor, His glory, His plan, and He's given us uh, an order for how to, we're supposed to use these things. Notice that He, first of all, gives word, the, the Word of God and Word-gifted leaders to equip every believer to do the work of building up the church. I mean, this kind of turns our modern day understanding of how churches are structured and ordered on its head. Many times we think that there's, that there's these pastors and hired people who are supposed to do the work of building up the church. But that's not what this text says. The, the, the Word of God is telling us every single believer is responsible to build up the church. The, 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 those who are hired as pastors and teachers are the ones who are supposed to equip every believer to train them so that they're capable to do that very thing. So it's interesting, it says here that uh, there's four roles that are given, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and this shepherd teacher person. And when we look at this, we, recognize, we need to recognize something really important. The first two roles, the idea of apostles and prophets, are something that God is referring to not here for today, but something that was throughout history the foundation for the ability to build the church in this way. The apostles are in actuality foundational men who, who saw Jesus, saw his works and miracles, were given special gifts themselves uh, to do, and, and then really uh, begin to help people understand who Jesus Christ actually is, and, and in particular to write some of the Word of God, really the New Testament for us. And so that's why in Ephesians 2 verse 20 it says this, it says uh, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's really important to see that the apostles and prophets are foundational role players. They're the ones who delivered God's word to us. And so uh, it's interesting. They're unique for that particular time. We, we don't have apostles today. 
Matter of fact, don't be tricked by those who would call themselves apostles because they don't have the capital A apostleship that the Word of God actually speaks of. There, there were 12 men who were unique. And in Luke 12, 28 to 30, it tells us that part of their, their uniqueness is that in heaven there are 12 thrones on which they're going to sit. Listen, 12, no more. Just the 12 from, from the New Testament. And then in Revelation 21, verse 14, it says that, there's, that they were going to be the 12 stones of foundation in the city, that, in the heavenly city that's being built. Again, the uniqueness of just the 12 of them for those things. And so we see that these apostles had this unique role of, of helping us understand the written word of God. Prophets, likewise, are the same. They're men who spoke for God. They, they were given direct revelation. They're men who heard directly from God and were able to write things down that have ultimately become our scripture. And again, I would suggest to you that prophets who are writing scripture don't exist today. Actually, there is supposed to be no addition to the word of God, to the scriptures that we have. So there's no opportunity for somebody to be a prophet in that manner anymore. Now, I believe there is a gift of prophecy that functions slightly different in that way. But when we talk about the prophets, we're talking about, the, and, the, and the apostles, we're talking about the foundational people who wrote the word of God for us. The reason they're so important is because now today we have people who are evangelists. These are those who are sent to preach the word of God. They're sent as missionaries and church planters all around the world. And then we have shepherd teachers who are to feed the flock of God, the word of God. Yeah, that's what we're even doing right here. In all of this, what we see here is that there are gifted leaders who are supposed to equip the saints to do the work of building the church. That, that's what verses 11 and 12 are saying. These, these, these gifted leaders, it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. These leaders are supposed to equip believers with the word of God. It's kind of what we said last week. Preach the word, Paul writes to Timothy. Preach the word, preach the word. The word is the thing that is going to equip believers to do the work of ministry. This idea of equip, by the way, in verse 12, it says to equip the saints, or maybe it says in your Bible to perfect the saints. It's this idea of being uh, to be restored, to be completed, to be full, to be mature, to be full grown. It's the idea of perfecting, and that's the goal. This equipping, the perfecting of believers. Listen, the word saints here is not talking about some Catholic de de declaration. It's just speaking of those who are simply believers of Jesus Christ. They are to be, so the word of God is to be used by the shepherd and the evangelist to perfect or, or to mature the saints so that they can build the church up in love. When believers grow up into maturity, they do the work of ministry, using their gifts to serve the church and to build it. So that's our second goal. The first goal was this idea of uni unity. The second goal is a unified and mature church. As believers use their gifts, they produce spiritual development. They, they help people grow in spiritual things. And the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is building up believers. And that results in two things. It, there, there's two benefits. Benefit number one is this. Look at verse 14. It's kind of said in a negative way. It says, So that we may no longer be children, 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the wind of the, every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we're no longer going to be gullible. We're no longer going to be victimized when we have the saints building up the body of Christ because they've been equipped with the word of God. Notice the dangers that we have here. We, we, we could have human cunning tricking us. We could have uh, craftiness and deceit causing, causing us to move away. In all of this, it's telling us that we are, benefit number one, we are no longer tossed around and tricked. Here's the second benefit. That's maturity, by the way. First benefit is maturity. Here's the second benefit. It's said in the positive way in verse 15. It says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are, to, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Listen, benefit number two is unity. When there's truth and love interwoven together, it grows us together, and the body is working properly. It's fully functioning. It's not broken down. It's working the way it's supposed to because of this unity that we have together under the headship of Jesus Christ. And all of that, we see in verse 13 that the really what we're trying to do in building the church up in love is to get to a place where we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of gifted saints is to build up the church of love to this place of maturity. And there's love that we're supposed to exhibit which produces unity, never at the expense of knowledge. Not, love is not less than knowledge. It, it's more than knowledge. And, it, and love, uh, when we love the truth, it produces a maturity because we love the truth that exists there. So practically, I just want to press us into some application. What does this mean we're supposed to do as a result of it? Well, it means, write this down, we need to grow in maturity. We need to grow to maturity. And that means we need a purpose to be equipped by the Word of God. That's what the, the Ephesians is telling us here, that when the Word of God is taught and preached faithfully, when, when there's a sermon that, that's taught, it builds us up. When we explore small group discussions, we're in the Word and it's growing up. When we learn how to be an expositional listener and we discuss that with others and we rally around the Word of God, that, that's us purposefully growing to maturity. It means, secondly, we need to work together as a team with other saints, with other believers who understand the role and the job that we have to grow up the body of Christ. And then third, that, that's the third thing. We need to build the body of Christ. And, and this is really a change of thought for so many. Because of this passage of Scripture, I realize I must contribute to the body, not just consume from the body of Christ. In other words, I need to be an active participant in the work of building the church I can't just show up and receive, 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 and, and, and think that that's a worthy living. That, that's, that's not living worthy of the calling to what you've been called. Worthy living is one which pursues the unity, does the hard work for that, and does the hard work of pursuing purposefully growing and maturing the church of Jesus Christ. I can't just be a consumer. I have to realize I'm called to be a contributor. 
So say it again, one last time with me. It's my job to make, it, make disciples. Let's say it. It's my job to make disciples. That's really what this text is trying to teach us here today. But I think as we say that, and even as you've thought about these things, as I preach God's word to you, there's probably some of us that are feeling a little bit funny about it. Feeling a little funny about that phrase because we realize we're saying something, but it's not really true inside of us. I think the reality is every single one of us struggle with that. We, we, we realize that, that I don't know if I really want to do this. I don't know. I, I can't actually do what I'm saying here, that I, it's my job to make disciples. I don't feel like I can do that. I don't think I want to do that. I don't want to even hear that I'm supposed to because I don't want to believe that I have to do that. That would upset my rhythm of life and the, my values and my purposes. And the reality is, I don't think I can do it. Or, I'm not. I won't do it. Or maybe, I, I just don't. I, I recognize it's not happening in my life right now. And the reason is because we all have a problem with this. We all kind of chafe against this in, in our own personal beings. There's, a, there's some things internally within us that, that if we're honest, we have to say, I have a problem. Can you say that with me right now? I, I have a problem with this. I, I have a struggle with this. It, if I'm really honest, I don't want unity. I like my independence. I like it when I'm at the center of things. I craft my life so that I, I, I'm actually at the center. I, I don't have to give. I don't have to sacrifice. Pastor, when you said those things, I knew it was true, but I don't want to do that. I, I struggle with the desire for that. If we're honest, we don't crave maturity. I like to be a child. I like it when people serve me and, and when I'm not responsible for things. And I would prefer not to have this laid on me. Actually, Pastor, I'm listening to you and I know this is the word of God and I know what it says, but I know I'm not going to do this because I would prefer not to grow up into maturity for these things. I want to be served. I want to be the center. I don't want responsibility. Listen, we all have heart problems when we meet every paragraph of God's word. And when we meet this one, I think the reality is purposeful discipleship is something that maybe we don't really pursue and don't really value the way God's word seems to be describing it because they have these internal heart concerns and issues. And the, the question is, how does that change? If this is God's truth, if this is God's plan, if he wants us to be purposefully involved in discipleship, how do I change my motivations? How do I reform the desires that are holding me back that, that I know, listen, even if you describe it, it's selfish and it's self-centered and it's not sacrificial the way the word of God says. How do I change that? Well, that's point number three here today. We need to meditate on the measure of Christ's gift. The motivation for purposeful discipleship really is understanding the measure, the measurement of what Christ has given to us. We need to understand the dimensions. We need to understand the worth and the value. We need to understand uh, what Christ has actually given to us. And to do that, it means uh, we're going to have to take a couple of steps. We're, first, we're going to have to take a step of repenting. 
We're going to have to repent. We're going to have to say, I have gifts from God. The text even teaches that to me, but I don't use them. Or if I use them, I use them selfishly and, and kind of idolatrously for my own uh, I, uh, worship. I have to admit that I'm wrong. I do consume and I haven't really contributed I haven't done the things that God's word tells me. I'm not walking worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Not only do you need to admit that perhaps that you've been out of step with these things, but you also need to agree that you can't change those things in and of yourselves, that your own selfish desires, it's not just the behavior on the outside, it's that in, on the inside, there's these selfish desires that have caused you to act in that way, and that, those are impossible to change in our own strength. That means we have to take a second step. We have to take a step of believing what Jesus Christ has done for us. We need to look with eyes of faith to what Jesus is saying here. And notice what he's saying in verse 7, 8, and 9. He helps us understand this here by saying this. Grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he, he led a, cap, a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that, but that he also descended into the lower regions to the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. It's interesting. Paul writes here and in verse 8, he actually quotes, or may I say he misquotes Psalm 68 verse 18. Now, he's an apostle, so he has, he's able to do that. We, we're not allowed to do that. But he, he, he actually changes the meaning of the original psalm to reflect what I believe the whole psalm is actually teaching in this one little sentence. In quoting the Psalm 68, verse 18, we're going to look at it in just a second. But notice here, he ascended on high and he leads a host of captives and he gives gifts to men. Paul is using imagery of a conquering king. And if we were to go back and, and let's do that, look at Psalm 68, we would see really an amazing picture. We would see the psalmist write this starting in verse 1. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall be, drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall shout with jubilant joy. What, what, what the psalmist is writing here is that God is going to come and he is going to conquer. And for those who are his enemies, that's going to be a terrifying and terrible thing. But, but for those who are righteous... Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, those who are believers, it becomes something very joyous. Really, we begin to see why in the next section here. Look at verse 4. It says, Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through, through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before Him. Why? Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary, the lonely, in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in the parched land. 
Listen, God comes and he conquers. And for those who are rebellious, they're, they're destroyed. They're out in this parched land. They, they don't actually follow him. But for those who want to be captive to him, those who choose to follow after him, this is such a good thing. He leads them out to prosperity. He, 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 they're not alone anymore. They're not fatherless anymore. They're not unprotected widows anymore. He gives all of that. And that is the measure of the gift that God gives. We've all been captive to the bondage of sin. But the, the king has come and he's overcome the world. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. So that you and I have this gift where we get to follow him, the victorious king. He, he takes care of us. He protects us. He, he, he's with us. And he gives us the prosperity of this gift, this amazing gift. And so then that's why in verse, from verse 7 to 17, it describes God's power and how he does that. And then in verse 18, it says, this is what Paul quotes back in our text in Ephesians 4. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Here it says he's receiving gifts, and Paul, Paul adds the twist on that he's giving gifts. Paul's emphasis here is that he leads a host of captives, that he releases us from cap captivity and bondage, and, and then he says he gives gifts to us. So those who were captive, those who, who were captive to the bondage of sin, they were empty, but it says that he might fill all things at the end of verse thing, that he might give us meaning and purpose if when he gives us these gifts. And so there it is, the conquering king bringing the captives, bringing us back home and giving us gifts that have purpose and meaning and to be used in his kingdom. We are to be disciple makers for him. That's so, such good news. Listen, if we dwell and we meditate on that, what we begin to see is, I'm not meaningless. How many of us struggle with feeling meaningless in this world? Like we don't really matter. It means I'm not worthless. I mean, hear this. This is the measure of God's gift. He brought you out of, of, of captivity and he's given you these gifts. He values you that you would use these gifts for his purpose. He trusts you. You're, you're not worthless. You're completely worthy because of him. And then you're not alone. Not alone. How many, how many people feel alone in this world? Like everybody has abandonment. Yes, there's people and family and friends around me, but I just feel alone. And when we see the measurement of the gift that Christ has given to you and you realize of his presence with you, that you're part of his family, that you're not alone, the measurement, the, the, the value and worth of that gift is such that it motivates me to want to serve in his kingdom, to be sent, to be a purposeful disciple maker. Listen, if we put the look of faith and we believe in what Jesus Christ is saying here, that God has given me purpose, great significance and value and worth is understood as you look to live out these things. Listen, we need to live as loved people. God loves us and loved people are always sent. That's an act of love to give us this purpose and this significance and this value and worth. And so let me just practically ask you, are you living worthy of your calling? Have you meditated on the gift 
and seen the measure that you've weighed it, you've seen the totality of it, and, and you see I have such a worthy calling, I need to live out that calling. Is there anything unworthy that needs to be repented of in your life right now? God's calling you to that. And he's faithful and just to forgive you if you'll but bring that to him and say, God, I can't take care of it on my own. Are you fighting for unity or are you just fighting? God wants you to fight for unity. That's the worthy calling to which he is calling you. And then are you growing to maturity and using your gifts? That's purpose and significance and value in his kingdom. We are called to make disciples in Jesus' church, to be purposeful disciple makers. And that means that we need to purposely live out the call to unity. We need to purposefully build up the body to maturity. When we realize that we've fallen short of those things, we should meditate on the measure of the fullness of Christ because in that comes all the purpose and meaning. We realize, I, I don't have to be slave to that sin. God's taken me captive. He'll bring me back and forgive me again. He gives me gifts. He loves me. He values me. I'm not meaningless. I'm not worthless. I'm not alone. I'm His. And I want to serve in His kingdom. Let's ask Christ to build our life in Him. Let's ask Jesus right now, God, would you build me? Would you show me your love? Would you demonstrate to me your purpose and how I fit into your plan in this world? Let's pray for that now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Man, it, it is so exciting to see how you have designed that glory would be made in the church and that you would use us as we walk in the worthy calling that we've been called, as we walk worthy in that, we, as we pursue the unity, as we pursue uh, growing the church up in, in maturity and making other disciples, God, we, we recognize that that is indeed what demonstrates how great you actually are. Lord, we want to be that kind of church. Would you build us to be purposeful disciple makers? Lord, rid us of any idea that somehow we would be significant in and of ourselves and help us to see that we build all of this on our understanding of you. That when we see the measure of the gift that you've given to us, we recognize that the gift, the gifts that you've given to us are a gift in themselves of value and worth and significance that comes when we put our trust in you. Lord, you fill us with that. You build us in an understanding of that, we pray and ask. And help our church to be a place that is a unifying and maturing place as we rally around these things together. We praise you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. To you be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.